Hey, welcome to the Rain and Morale podcast. So do you ever feel like screaming out in the office on Zoom or outside the school gates? For the love of God, come on, really? Then if this is you and you're looking for an honest, fun and frank podcast on life and business, then sit back and listen to me, Rain and Morale. I'll be bringing great people on the show to talk, share and debate their life experiences and business challenges. Keeping the show unpolished, but in a fun and unique British style, with sarcasm, tenacity, maybe a few swear words or tears. This podcast keeps it real, honest, raw and removes the bullshit in the only way I know how, through authenticity and getting shit done. Think of it less like the Housewives of New York or TOWIE with the lipo and drama and more like the house lives of the real world. I hope you'll take something away to be better informed laugh, smile, or maybe even finally getting the confidence to shout, come on, really. So enjoy. podcast. How are you this morning? I'm fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to chat. Uh, well, you're, you're very welcome. And of course, no one would have heard the conversation we had just before this, where everything went wrong for me. So <laughs> that's, that's great to, to, to know. So for all the listeners out there, I'm super excited to have Simon Borsha with me today, who I'm um, reliably informed that um, is a close pronunciation of your surname, but not quite, <laughs> not quite nailing what it what it actually should be. But I but I believe you and your dad have, have kind of given up on that. So yeah. yeah, just to just to introduce you guys to you to the to the listeners, Simon is the chief executive of the um, Shannon Elizabeth Foundation. And I know you're a hugely passionate traveller um, in all things as well in terms of wildlife, conservation, and, and most importantly, integrating Indigenous people into that entire process. Um, I know that you're extremely experienced in brand and strategy and have worked with some incredibly big names, WWF, uh, Volvo Ocean Race. Um, so you're, you're, you're pretty savvy on the business side uh, as well and I know that at the moment you've got this really exciting um, change in direction and business opportunity really with um, give tech which we're going to talk about a bit later on which is going to shake the kind of traditional model of of giving for NGOs and lastly I suppose but but slightly embarrassing for me you have your own podcast which is the art of conservation your number one <laughs> um uh, spot in 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 terms of nature and conservation podcasts and i know it's ranked in in many other countries so um you're you, <laughs> I, i'm feeling some somewhat this big right now but anyway oh, no, I'm, I'm delighted to have you on welcome thank you so very much you, you're very very kind and look to be to be honest i think creating a podcast is it's driven by passion um and i still don't have a clue what i'm doing um, to be very blunt, um, but I love it. I absolutely love it. I think as a, as a platform, the ability for people to share stories and connect, especially in the last two years, has emphasized the value of, of podcasts. So it's brought us together. So thank you so much. Oh, no, absolutely. And I know we, you know, we've only really kind of known each other and been introduced um, quite, quite recently. But listen, let's dive into to yeah. your, your, your world and tell the listeners a bit more about the, um, the foundation and the conservation side that you're, you're working on. 
Thank you. Yeah, uh, the Shannon Elizabeth Foundation has been uh, has been a very very interesting journey. Um, I was very fortunate that I grew up in a conservation landscape. Um, my father founded a magazine called Africa Geographic about thirty five years ago. So while all of my friends in junior school were heading off to the coast to beach houses for holidays, I in, invariably ended up in some uh, remote elephant orphanage. Uh, shoveling elephant poo or, you know, helping move animals or doing whatever it, it took. And it's funny, you know, at the time, you don't realize how informative those experiences are. And as you alluded to earlier, I ended up going in this very divergent trajectory into the world of business development and brand development strategy. Um, but that was always my core. And so when Shannon and I met um, and realized her passion and, and how much we shared together, it was a decision um, to either reinvigorate my old uh, brand development business, my agency, or to go back into conservation full time. Mm -hmm. And we dragged my old man out of retirement, dusted him off and said, yeah, Gandalf, <laughs> you're not done yet. And um, he joined us. And then it was a question of trying to decide what we do as, as a foundation. Shannon had started a 501c3, a dog and cat rescue in LA in 2001. So her journey into the NGO space was, was an enviable one and a truly authentic one. And her commitment to understanding Africa and understanding the conservation issues that we face were more than just sort of the passing, I'm going to fly to Africa, deliver a few things and, and, and leave again. Yeah. And that authenticity really resonated with what we had done as a family for a long time. And then my, my brain kicks in and we, we sat down and we had a really, really tough conversation with each other because so often I think NGOs are created because we love something. We love a rhino, for example, and therefore we want to do all we can to protect it. But the horrible truth of running an NGO is that you very quickly learn that passion is not a qualification. Yeah. And because we love something, it doesn't mean that we're going to be good at contributing to its protection. And so we've got to be really honest and say quite, uh, you know, quite difficult in, in a way. But, you know, is there a gap in the market? But is there a market in the gap? Mm -hmm. In other words, what I love and what skills I have, can I contribute constructively in that space? Or should I re-interrogate how we do that? So I'm a complete oceans guy. You know, if I'm in it, on it, or under the waves, I'm happy. Yeah. Yacht racing, diving, free diving, surfing, you name it, that's where I'm happiest. I'm equally happy in the bush. I think I'm just allergic to concrete is really it. Like, <laughs> I just need to get away from cities. that They freak me out. But so we sat down and we said, where are our core skills? And where are the, are the major opportunities where we can contribute to that? And one of the things that we found that was quite unique about us was that Shannon had this incredible base of people that were not necessarily within the conservation world. As conservationists, we tend to talk to each other. We tend to live in a bit of a vacuum. Yeah. And one of the greatest tasks we share is to try and bring more people into the conservation economy and, and harness the collective passion around the world to do good and to be kind, which I think is a universal truth. So we then took that and said, right, what we can do is education and awareness. Um, I'm very proud to say the old man is arguably the, the most celebrated living wildlife author and, and, and journalist in Africa at the moment. That's so incredible. how do we leverage that beautiful industry storytelling and credibility 
take it to a broader market and to a new market of people and do it in a way that the construct of the organization is inviting and um, and is warm in its reception to take people that want to learn but don't know everything. Um, NGOs can be quite intimidating beasts when you try and engage with them. And we wanted to break down those misconceptions and yeah. to say it's okay to not have all the answers. Um, what is not okay is not to come together. Um, and so we put all of those things together. And long story short, we've got a, um, an education and awareness portal where we create a series of reviews that make otherwise very overtly scholastic or academic information yeah. accessible to the, to the public domain. And that tends to answer the observation that we had that so often on social media, we just confronted, just to carry on with the rhino analogy, is that you know, we, we confronted with an image of a rhino with its face cut off. Yeah. And it's this extreme trauma. And then on the back of that, we ask for money. And what we don't see enough of, I believe, is that how do you go from that emotional connection with suffering and with pain, but to turn that as into a gateway to education and awareness so yeah. that when you do act, when you do give, you're doing it from, from an informed perspective and not from a guilt perspective. And I'm sure we'll get into more of that discussion a little bit later. Definitely. So Rhino Review, yeah, Rhino Review was our first proof point on that. And it, it's it's doing really well for us. Um, we've got our Youth Empowerment Division. We just launched our One Woman's Legacy Scholarship Fund, which is a fund and a mentoring program to get more young African women into the biodiversity economy. So we've just awarded our first scholarship to a PhD uh, student from Zimbabwe. Uh, who's doing this amazing doctorate at the intersection of bird ecology and wind power as a sustainable, um, as a renewable energy source, a viable renewable energy source, particularly on the southeastern coastline of South Africa. Yeah. Um, and then we've got a youth program as well that we do in collaboration with a group called Lessons in Conservation, which is taking senior university kids and sending them out across seven African countries during their vacation time to educate the educators and to take the kids into the bush and to help them um, learn more about the environment that surrounds them every day. Uh, yeah. We've got a permanent presence in Washington, D.C., where we work as advisors to congressmen and women and senators over the implication of uh, environmental or species-specific bills, so big cut public safety act and things like that. Um, and then we've got a, a rescue and rehabilitation program where we're building out a, a program at the moment um, to try and uh, to to try and breed the critically endangered black rhino, um, so that we can play a constructive role in repopulating the areas decimated by poaching, whilst yeah. defending genetic diversity and so on. Yeah. And then we've got a huge community focus where. Throughout COVID, we've worked with communities across the continent uh, to try and help them navigate these really, really crazy times. And then also a model that tries to uh, see communities take hold and take ownership of their conservation lands and not in a landlord paradigm, but rather to create a business model that sees them evolve into the into the tourism industry. You know, I, I would love yeah. to see a day where places like Botswana are not awarding these massive concessions to largely foreign white-owned businesses, but they're awarding them to their own communities. Um, that's how we're going to retain value in Africa. That's how we're going to retain mm -hmm. economic value, which will ultimately lead to that socioeconomic reform that we so desperately need. Yeah. So that's what keeps us busy, Rita. <laughs> is, is, that, is that all? 
<laughs> I'm in the podcast, but that's uh, that's. that's... <laughs> no, well, I mean, wow, there, there's a huge lot to, to digest there. I guess mm-hmm. on that on that sort of latter point, I think Africa is such a, a continent of wealth and value that the more that it's empowered and given those opportunities through the indigenous people, through the communities, the value in the land, um, the animals, the mining, it was, there's such a huge opportunity for that continent. So it's, it's exciting, but I, I do hope that, that, that that's driven more frequently. Now, I was going to, obviously we've used kind of the rhino analogy and I, I know you have an adoption. Um, you've recently adopted a, a, a black rhino who's, who's blind. Yeah. But I also know that you've just recently dehorned him. So for those that don't really know or understand, why, why have you done that? And, and what, what's the process and what have you then done with the, the horn? Yeah, sure. I, you know, dehorning is something that um, I, I've, I've yet to see anyone enjoy. Um, it's, it's a physical act that cements the fact that every effort before it has fundamentally failed the the legislative interventions the political interventions the community interventions all of these hugely valuable assets within conservation that must not be slowed down i'm not criticizing them per se but what i am saying is is that it's such an overwhelming problem that unless we can urgently find a lot of cohesion within those practices we forced into a position where we've got to look at a militarized approach to protecting rhino right. and ultimately dehorning. And in my opinion, when you've got a man with a gun standing in front of a rhino to protect that rhino from a man with a gun, something's broken. Something is fundamentally broken. How did they get that close? So in that sort of very triage-based approach, while we try and look for long-term solutions, we have to figure out what are the short-term time buying activities that we can do that will give an opportunity for these more uh, sort of legislative and political interventions to come into play. And we mustn't stop at any of these. And we've got to continue with all of them. But the dehorning process itself is literally to remove the attractiveness of poaching that rhino. And, you know, in, in South Africa, we call a full moon a poacher's moon. Um, because it's the it's the night where poachers are able to move quite freely because of the abundance of light from the from the full moon. Right. Once a month, everybody is on tenterhooks. But you can imagine that at night, being able to see a silhouette, a natural silhouette of an animal, if you could see the silhouette of that rhino, and it doesn't have a horn, are you prepared to risk your life? Are you pre- prepared to risk incarceration for what is essentially a small reward? Um, and we've got to rem- remind ourselves of what is driving this. And it's not just fine rhino powder. They want the entire horn. So right. the attractiveness of the tiny little bit of horn that's left is radically reduced when they can go, let's keep looking. Um, and where the strategy has been deployed, certainly in places like northern KwaZulu-Natal on South Africa's east coast, mm-hmm. we've seen a reduction in some areas of over 90% in poaching incidences and 90% of incursions have reduced as well. Amazing. So it, it definitely has a place. Um, the actual act of doing it is nothing short of soul destroying. Um, I mean, even sitting here now, like I get, mm. it, it hurts. It really hurts because... We've messed with animals so much that the only way to protect them is to carry on messing with them just differently. 
And we've got to choose. Do we want to take the rhino horn off with a tranquilizer or do yeah. we allow for the rhino horn to be taken off with a bullet? And that's kind of where we're at. Yeah. So the actual act of dehorning um, is a really involved in a very, very expensive operation that involves vets, ground crews, anti-poaching units, rangers, security details, more often than not helicopters. Um, fortunately for this one, because Munu, our, our blind rhino, is so contained and so habituated yeah. that we didn't need that function. Um, but you can look at anywhere between one and $2,000 per animal to dehorn. Wow. And all it's buying you is 18 months of, of hopeful protection. Um, the actual act of doing it, what the, the vets have become so experienced at this, which is, which is demoralizing in itself, because mm. the idea of becoming good and experienced at dehorning just suggests that there's been a need to become good at it. Well, which I, I, I guess in a way, you know, to be an experienced dehorner, effectively, you're, an ex, you're being experienced in something that's defacing um uh, uh, an animal it's it's yeah. meant to have that it's it's and for what is ultimately the same as a fingernail yeah it, it's so it's, very sad it's bizarre i mean the, the 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 attending vet on on this last experience on this last dehorning mission and we did five others at the same time including the biggest horn i've ever taken off a rhino i've done probably about 130 of dehornings myself and this was the biggest um, you know, almost 10 kilograms of horn, um, wow. arguably close to a million dollars, somewhere between half a million and a million dollars, one horn. Um, so how do you feel about well, two things, really? How do you do you see any negative impact on the the the, the natural mm. um, mating or behaviors once a rhino's dehorn? Do they manage to function the same? It's a great question, um, and one that raises a lot of fierce debate within conservation circles. You know, those that have the lunacy or the, the, the um, dare I say, the arrogance to believe that trading in rhino horn is going to do anything but make a few people very rich, um, suggest that it doesn't have an impact. Um, but I've seen hundreds of rhinos with their horns cut off every single one of them is acutely aware of what has changed on their face. Right. And, you know, that we, we've got to consider it. So when, when we go through that dehorning process, the tranquilizer that they use is something called M99, uh, which is a drug that is 10,000 times more powerful than morphine. If you or I had to get it on our skin, there's a very realistic chance if we didn't get the antidote, we would probably die. Wow. It is extremely powerful. And then it's mixed with a cocktail of, of other drugs that help the reversal of the drug. Um, some of the steroids, because one of the side effects of M99 is that it can have a negative impact uh, on the respiratory system. So you've got to monitor breathing, you've got to monitor all of these things and stress levels and anxiety and so on. So dependent vets have different methodologies and that's also influenced by topography, uh, subspecies, temperature, yeah. time of day, location, condition of the animal. There's a whole bunch of variables that are, you know, I run out of talent. Those are when the vets take over. <laughs> yeah. But um, when, they, when they dart the animal and the animal goes down within about three or four minutes, the, the actual operation takes about 20 minutes and it involves taking DNA samples. Quite often they'll take fecal samples. And the reason why they take the DNA samples is that one, it allows us 
should that rhino ever be poached and the horn is seized somewhere around the world you can that yeah it's literally the same forensic database as you would see in csi miami or whatever they are you know that that you've got a database of animals that you can now link to right. criminals and and crimes committed so we try and manage that as best we as best we can and that goes to a place called rodus which is the uh, the rhino DNA database at the University of Pretoria in uh, in South Africa. Okay. But so so when the animal's down and you can think of all of these drugs that have gone into it, we know as humans that if we are subjected to too many general anesthetics, that it can have a potential long term risk. Yeah. So in my opinion, and this isn't a medical opinion, but it, in my opinion, it would be naive to believe, without adequate research that repeated and consistent tranquilizing and darting of the rhino is not going to have an, some kind of an impact. Right. The time and the, and the concentration of the dehorning period has kind of been in the last 10 to 12 years, which is a relatively small period of time mm. for any kind of deep analytical research to be done. So there is concern in that. But that's from the, the opioids and the, and the drugs use that there could be potential long-term impact. Um, I would be surprised if there if there isn't, um, but I'm not qualified to say that definitively. Yeah. Um, from an emotional perspective, it's very difficult to argue that there isn't some kind of impact. Rhinos have horns, and their horns have evolved and maintained for over 50 million years on the planet. They need them. They have them for and a reason. <laughs> and they're right in front of their eyes. This is, you know. So it protects them. It's uh, for fighting, for territory, for moving through trees, through brows without injuring themselves. There's, there's a multitude of reasons why rhino need their horn. Um, and when you take that away, we don't know definitively where that has an impact on the social construct of rhino. Right. Um, I mean, I've seen a rhino getting dehorned. I saw it two days ago. We, we dehorned a, 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 what well, she's now, must be close to about 16, 17 years old. And her calf, who's about two and a half years old, so has a, a decent horn himself, which was also taken off. Um, suddenly she wakes up and there's this running across the felt reunion <laughs> of this mom and the baby. And the baby literally cannot take its focus away from mom's face. Because it's changed. It's looking, it's rubbing, it's sniffing, that... I, no one can convince me otherwise that there isn't an, an acknowledgement or an awareness that something yeah. has happened. Um, so we've got to be mindful of that. The other thing that we've also got to be mindful of, and I know that there is amazing work being done across the country at the moment in South Africa to ensure the best practice standards of uh, dehorning are maintained. Because what can happen um, and this usually happens when unqualified, unregistered people do dehornings right. and not qualified vets, is that they'll go too close to the growth plate. Right. So a rhino's horn doesn't, uh, isn't attached to its skull. It sits over a growth plate, over its nasal cavity. Right. And that's in a, in, a, in a convex shape. So the moment you go too deep, you're cutting into that nasal cavity. So when that horn grows back, it runs the risk of growing back with some deformities. And yeah. some vets refer to it as you know, a volcano horn where the, where, the ins, where the middle of the horn becomes hollow. So the structural integrity is compromised. 
So there's a multitude of factors that I don't think it is safe for anyone to say that definitively no dehorning does not have a long-term impact. I think there's so many variables that we need to be very, very careful of how we choose to even engage in that subject, let alone make a definitive statement. And I, and I suppose for some people, they wouldn't even be aware that you have to keep repeating that process. They might just think once the animal's dehorned, that's it, the animal's safe, but it's not because like you say, 18 months later, yeah, we're back in the same position, like your fingernails have grown and you're back doing it again. So yeah, I mean, and in, in terms of the, the, the continent of Africa and dehorning, then what about the debate on dehorning and selling the rhino horn to help conservation or putting it in a bank, locking it away, and not allowing it into the market. <laughs> really sensitive you, subject, but no, it, it is. Um, do you want the short answer or the quick one? I don't. I don't mind. Go, go for it. I, there's still lots I want to talk about. So yeah. I, okay. So I mean, I'll, I'll I'll give the I'll give the quick one, and then I'll dive into it a little bit more, and you can cut me off um, at any time because this is a, a deeply polarizing discussion, but one that I think requires some airtime um, for people to understand that the calls for a trade in rhino horn are, illogic, are illogical, immoral, and are void of any strong economic argument. And the reason why I say that is if you could imagine a trader, an intended rhino horn trader going onto Shark Tank uh, or Lion's Den, and they, they sit in front of the, the lions and the sharks and they say, right, um, What's your business? I'm going to sell rhino horn. And they go, great. Tell me about the industry. No, it's globally banned. Oh, okay. Um, but if you invest in us, then maybe we can get past that. And then maybe one day we can trade, in which case it would be really possible and really profitable. What do you make that statement on? Um, how big is the market? No idea. Um, okay. Well, how much supply have you got? I don't know. So your market's illegal. You don't know the size of your market. You don't know your absolute ability to deliver X amount, mm -hmm. but yet it is somehow a viable option. Um, so I think from an economic perspective, I know I'm oversimplifying it to make the point, but there is a fundamental disconnect between the, the assertion that uh, we understand enough, the, the data that we do have that is empirical, and literally the chap who did this study some years ago, it cost him his life. He was assassinated because of this. Um, the late Dr. Ed Esmond Martin, who did a really strong study in analyzing that during the late 60s and 70s when rhino poaching was at its highest, yeah. though during that time, there was an estimated 70 tons of rhino horn that was poached each year going into China. And if we look at the economics of China at that time, it was a deeply communist state, a deeply controlled state, not a lot of affluence you know, below the, the, the top two percentile. Um, and the population was perhaps 50 or 60% of what it is now. Yeah. So now we look at that and say, it's fair to say that just in that one country, the market has doubled in terms of its size, but it's also infinitely grown in terms of commercial uh, access. Yeah. So now all of a sudden we've got more millionaires in Shanghai than the rest of the world combined just about. So the market has grown not just in number, but in affluence. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that's just one country. Since that time, the demand for rhino horn is now being driven out of Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, uh, Taiwan, Japan, etc. And that's before the transition companies um, or countries that see it traveling around the world, the Middle mm. East, USA, etc. So it's a deeply um, complicated and evolved market. Mm. It's like the, the it's like the drugs trade, ultimately. It's, yeah, totally, totally. It's, it's on it's on totally on a par with with that type yeah. of underground, highly affluent, highly dangerous. Um, it's the same syndicate. Yeah, that much okay. we know. The convergence technology between the intelligence agencies and divisions working within human trafficking, uh, guns trafficking, or arms trafficking, and drugs trafficking. It's the same people. Yeah. So, you know, so if we look at those numbers and we go at that stage, 70, 70 ton of rhino horn was being poached every year. We've got no idea whether that was a definitive size of that market, but yeah. that's what was being taken. Fast forward to now where the market has dramatically increased but we've got an assertion from the pro traders who suggest that at best we can produce 15 tons of rhino horn a year consistently. So on a market that is 40 years old, half the size of what it is now, and that's one country out of the eight or nine that we know are consuming rhino horn now, who is going to make up the deficit if not poachers? And then there's also just the cost of goods. If I farm rhino, I'm going to have costs. But if I poach a rhino, my costs are negligible. And I don't think there's no logic on the planet that suggests that illegal trade is going to make a poacher go, oh, I've been waiting to be legal. <laughs> yeah. And all of a sudden, they're going to register with the registrar of companies and suddenly become legitimate traders. Of course, they're not. And by it's the very than it is to buy a farm. Yeah. yeah. And by the very nature of those numbers, what then happens is the value in price goes up and up and up and up and up and therefore yeah. the risks that people are willing to take that's it um and and lives are lost on a daily basis and you know i, I hope that you know those listening are aware of that certain basic basic knowledge um but I, I i do agree with what you say we see these hideous pictures and then we're asked for money and that's across many ngo many ngo models and so mm -hmm. One of the things that I know you guys want to really challenge and change is the idea of how, um, you know, you can change that and what you're kind of doing with, with give tech. So based on the knowledge that we're, we all see these things and, and, and it gets very overwhelming. Do we support human trafficking, cancer, conservation? What, but equally, do I trust the NGO? Are they really, is the money really getting there? Um, and why do we need an NGO in the first place? Tell me more about GiveTech and how you're trying to shake that up. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd, thank you for that. Just one thing I just want to say on the Rhino as well is at the moment we sell it, we legitimize the trade. For years, we've been saying there is no medical value in it. Yeah. The moment we start trading it, we're effectively saying, sorry, we were wrong. By all means, use it. So the likelihood of your market growing is it's also there. But anyway, back to GiveTech. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no 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 and, and absolutely if, yeah. if, there's, if there's anything that's, that's yeah. key to get out there this this is the knowledge and these are the things that you have to you have to you have to say and it, and it's right i i just as a human being of a fingernail of 10 fingernails 10 fingers 10 toes and hair like well not much of it but hair like i don't get it i just but I equally it's steeped in you know 
history in Asia. Um, well, the crazy thing is, is that it isn't anymore. A percentage of it, yes, is still driven by traditional Chinese medicine through uh, you know, the TCM mm. side of it. But increasingly, it's seen as a status symbol in a transaction within a business deal and an entire horn is given. Um, and they want a wild horn. So that also talks to the viability of a farmed animal. Um, and the other side of it is being used as a hangover cure in places like Vietnam by the social elite. So the, 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 the attachments that people have to it is no longer linear. It's, it's a deep web of misconception. Um, mm. I think that that is an opportunity because we're no longer dealing with this radical reliance on unbundling thousands of years of cultural identity. We're now looking at something as the ubiquitous cool. Is it cool to do or not? So it's changed the it's changed the dynamic a little bit. So you know, so from my marketing brain, I suddenly go, yeah, we've we've got these skills trying to get people to buy things. Can we use those same skills to get people to not buy things? So that's the kind of demand reduction strategic approach that we try yeah. and take. Well, I think for me, it's just over the last you know hundred years, we as humans have developed exponentially in in the time scale of how long humans have been here so in terms of education knowledge science technology we have all the answers there are no excuses mm, so absolutely. that's the bit that I, I guess i most struggle with i think i think what people do as well is that as long as you argue about the data you never have to accept the the responsibility that comes with acknowledging it. Mm. So as long as I can say to you, no, you're wrong, or, and it just degenerates into these ad hominem attacks, as long as people do that, they trying to just push the stone up the hill saying, you know, sort of the edifice thing of just keeping that, that thing at bay of not letting it swamp me and suddenly I'm responsible for it. Yeah. Because once you know, you know. And so it's far easier to just not know and refuse education on certain things. And that's what we see with the illegal wildlife trade. It's much easier. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's yeah. Less, yeah. I, I guess, I guess it's, <laughs> like a lot of things, it is much easier just to put your head in the sand and go, I've just got to focus on, on what I'm doing. I, I can't cope because it can be overwhelming. But anyway. Oh, God, let's, yeah. Let's get on, to, get, yes. get on to GiveTech. How are you shaking up? What, what, are, you, what are you doing? Um, so one of the things that's always bugged me about the uh, relationship between NGOs and those that give, um, and this goes back to a lot of the strategic work I did sort of 10 years ago, um, and it frustrated the hell out of me because the construct is fundamentally flawed in my opinion. Um, and that's because when we give to a charity, that transaction is deemed legitimate if that charity can give you your tax certificate, your, your tax receipt. So 501c3 version, the section 18a in South Africa. Yeah. Um, and then if you've got the registration marks in place and you've got all of those fiduciary responsibilities managed within an NGO to the point that you can give that certificate legitimately, that's considered a strong reaction. Yeah. And so there's two problems with that. The one is, is that when people give, they are rewarded at a point of giving, not at a point of impact. 
The other side of it, certainly in a South African context and in a U.S. context, under different and under under different legislative uh, language, mm. is that an NGO has got no responsibility to be publicly audited. In other words, what they what they do with that money is socially audited. In other words, we see, we hear these growing cries of people saying, "Ah, oh, too much of your money is going to overheads and executive salaries and what have you." Yeah. But there isn't any empirical data where we can go and say, what are you doing with the money? So then there was this big push and we had these amazing organizations like Charity Navigator, GuideStar in the US that started to authenticate what NGOs said they were doing and started to expose in one place what their financials looked like. And so you could see, okay, well, they got $10 million or $10 and this is how they spent the money. Yeah. And so that started to change the relationship, but I still felt that it wasn't good enough because what we're essentially talking about is we can't possibly fix the issues of the world when so many of the environmental challenges we have have largely been created by, I think in many instances, very innocent companies. Mm. But those companies various measures or, or legislative and tax issues around the world or opportunities around the world suggest that maybe 5% of declared profit will go to some kind of corporate social responsibility, corporate philanthropy funding. Yeah. So really what we're saying is, is that how you hurt the planet is a function of business. How you yeah. create 100% of your value is, is okay if you stay within vaguely, weirdly, managed lines of how we impact the planet yeah. but yet we think we can fix these problems with three percent of declared profit yeah so this idea that philanthropy is now a function of profit rather than a function of systems is in itself fundamentally flawed so my deconstruction of that led me to to, to the idea that i don't believe that when we think about the family offices in the us and in europe and the uk where families have this deep understanding of generational wealth. Yeah. I was on a call with a family last night. They could trace their business and their philanthropic efforts for over a quarter of it, a, a, over 250 years. Wow. So these, they understand legacy. They understand general wealth preservation. And more and more, we're starting to see that the fundamentals of a healthy planet are critical to the defense of generational wealth. What's the point of having a billion dollars if the world ends in 25 years? <laughs> so, who cares? You know, so there, there is a huge mind shift. So with that mind shift understood, we as an organization, we created something called the Corporate Alliance Program, which was how do we restructure the relationship um, with, uh, with, our, with our people? Yeah. And so that strategy was written by GiveTech, which is a... Uh, which is a company that, that we've started or that I've started that talks to a disruptive technology and how we assess and how we structure philanthropic investment and right. putting measurable impact at the head of those, those agreements and understanding what a return on philanthropic investment looks like, not just in, within the eyeline of ESGs. ESGs are fantastic, but they're very American and Eurocentric language that yeah. talks about what organizations do, not the impact they have. And so no one cares. The community that is impoverished, that's sitting on the, 
on the outskirts of Gorongosa National Park or Nyasa or Kruger National Park or the Salu or wherever, they don't care about acronyms. Yeah. They want to know whether they can eat, turn the lights on, go to school, get healthcare, have have a job, have a career. Yeah. So ESGs don't talk to the fundamental impact in the areas of the world where we need it most. So we said, but we don't need it to. We can talk a different language. We can create a different construct. So GiveTech was then realized as a partnership between myself and a series of other organizations that have critical skill sets to analyze, evaluate, and strategize around a new thinking. And for, for the Shannon Elizabeth Foundation, that played out with the CAP program. And what we said was donations are rewarded at a point of giving. Investment is rewarded at a point of return. Investments right. require patience. And a donation requires immediate gratification. So we said, let's do away with donations. So now we're changing, we're changing the language in our entire organization that whether you give us $5, $500,000 or $5 million, we regard you as an investor. Because as an NGO, I believe it is our responsibility to not just say, what did we do with your money? But what impact did we have with your money? And what that starts to do is that it starts to force us to have a discussion about, let's evaluate impact, not action. And yeah. That's fundamentally changed the language and the discussions that we've been having with our investors and our and our landscape, because we need to take a, a long-term view over how we fix these things. And the other reason why I like that is that we get to start, we get to start working within a framework that says, I don't have to tip my cap every February or every December and yeah. pray that we get enough money to carry on doing what we were doing last year. Yeah. There's no strategic value in that. There's no scalability in that. But if I know that I've got a relationship with an investor, that they are funding this program or this intervention or whatever it might be for the next five years, yeah. I can look at the horizon again. Now, suddenly I can scale my impact. And also, and, I guess it's that, sorry, sorry to quit. Hmm, I guess no, no, no. I, I'm just thinking about a lot of people who might be listening and, and certainly for me who gives x amount each month to different causes but you yeah. never feel part of the story and when you first donate you might get a cuddly toy and a photo and all of this and i just think actually keep your cuddly toy because <laughs> right. um, you're just creating stuff that's going to get thrown away but what i do want to do is i do want to see maybe a video of what's happening in that uh, you know, conservation area, or what's happening with the numbers? What's happened to the to the rangers? Introduce me to some of the rangers. Like, yeah. there's never that feeling of um, engagement and and empowerment that you can then, as an individual, go, "Oh my God, you should so get involved and invest." Yeah. In, in this. Well, I think that that's also, you know, if you think about it, every donation. Um, and not to be too esoteric about it, is an exchange of value. We have an expectation when we part with money. And sometimes I think that the, the subconscious expectation of when we donate is to feel better. Mm. It's, it's a fairly, um, and we all do it, and we all do it from beautifully altruistic positions. But the primary reward that we've got to change in the public's mind is that the reward is not that you've given. The reward has got to be the mandated response and saying, what have you done with my money? And what impact have you had with my money? 
And if I can say at the top of that, of that discussion as the recipient of those funds, if I can show you all of those processes, do you commit to giving me money again? Because if you do, now suddenly we've got something that's scalable. Now we can start gaining traction. So that was that was the, the, the one point on that. The other one is, is that I think a lot of NGOs sell problems. Yeah. So I need the problem to exist for my marketing campaign to function because I'm showing you the crying shock. baby with a face yeah. on its face. I'm showing you the rhino cut up. I'm showing you the ranger that's been shot or whatever it might be. And I mean, I'm making very crass examples to make mm. the point, but I think you get what I mean is that so often we are presented with, you know, starve, starvation and yeah. donate. So it's like, here's the problem. Give me money. Yeah. So it's almost like if I give you money, will you please stop showing me that picture? <laughs> and and what we're saying is is that you can you can donate to a problem yes absolutely but you've got to invest in a solution because i can't put the solution on the table i can't show you definitively that these that this document is going to save rhino yeah. what i can do is say here's x amount of money here's a huge amount of money yeah. Um, yeah and this is what we will do with it here's the moments of incremental return and value and this is why we believe that this is going to be a viable proposition to stop the poaching crisis. Now, all of a sudden, you've got an investment into a solution. So it's the language that we as NGOs have got to be brave enough to start talking about. Because at the end of the day, an NGO's primary job is to put itself out of business. <laughs> well, exactly. It's like having the best employee and, and letting them leave, letting them go. Sorry, I've been moving around um, just because I realized I look like an angel to be most of that. So I was like, really? Oh. <laughs> I am having the worst day <laughs> ever. Honestly, for anyone who was, um, so Simon and I were chatting before I started this, and I was just saying everything had gone wrong. My laptop wasn't working. My sound had gone. And then I just had my new laptop re-delivered this morning. So I ran into the kitchen. I was like, sorting that one out but of course they've more or less factory reset it so i grabbed my husband's laptop um and then this has just happened so listen apologies we we were absolutely um mid-flow and and, and talking that's but all you, good please do pick up um simon on that i'm sorry what was the last bit you heard so we, we we were talking about obviously through through give tech and how changing the the language talking about investment hmm. um and oh, actually, that's right. yeah yeah um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that that as an NGO, we our first responsibility is how do we structure our organizations to represent one scalability, but also what happens if you achieve the task. So we, as, as an example, I'm not saying this is the right way. I'm just saying this is this is the right way for us. This is working for us. Is that we've decentralized all of our costs. So. Our, our administrative overheads are very, very small and everybody and everything operates within a project. So if the project is successful, we can remove it without affecting the, uh, the operational efficiencies of any other program or the organization. Similarly, if the project doesn't work, and I think this is the other thing of NGOs, is that when you know you're not winning and there are people doing it better than you, Just step stop down just get out of the way you're just creating clutter you're creating confusion um 
And as, as an example, we we had someone approach us saying, we want you to put together a particular kind of program. And I went back to them and I said, it's not us. It's not what we do. Like, yeah, but we trust you. We've got a relationship with you. And I said, yeah, but that relationship is based on on trust. That relationship is based on impact. That yeah, when yeah. I say I do something, I'm going to do it. I'm telling you, I can't do it with this. But I can introduce you to someone that is far better than us and, yeah. and, and that, that are going to knock it out of the park for you. So we did that. I guess there's a lot of that, isn't there? There's a lot of strength in that, in saying, actually, I'm going to introduce somebody else because I know they're really good at it. And equally, I guess sometimes you just wish everybody that's working in, in um, conservation could just form one massive play and, and really <laughs> go to town because effectively you're competing against each other as well. You are. And I think that one of the biggest challenges that we have is that people because so much of the NGO landscape tends to be marketing driven, crisis driven, yeah. is that you have these spikes around critical periods. There's a big media explosion on what's happening with poaching or poaching goes up or ocean plastic, something happens, another turtle's found with a straw in its nose or something. There is some catalyst that drives a mass reaction. And I'm celebrating that mass reaction because it is validation yeah. that the vast majority of people on this planet care and they want to be part of something good. They want to be part of a solution because they recognize when something is broken and they recognize their ability to be a part of correcting it. And as you, as you say, I mean, perhaps you and I are a bit utopian in that sense of like, how do we bring everyone together in this big happy dance? Um, I would love to see that. But I what we what we advocate for is collaborations yeah it, they're very very few programs that we run that are not collaborative yeah um, even if they don't have to be collaborative i still pull people in because we've got to start changing that messaging that somehow someone can own a solution to the world yeah it's, and because it is it's totally unrealistic and it's like yeah, you know completely. even as much as if i said you know what if 95 percent of business profits went into the planet and three percent you know five percent don't know my own math you know yeah. just just went into to paying a decent salary and you know some nice holidays and and some food on the table C can you imagine what that would be like but I, i'm naive and i'm stupid to think that that's ever going to happen but um but I think, in, I, I think in some way, in some way it can and it is happening. Um, and that said, I think that NGOs need to start thinking of themselves as collaborative business assets yes. for their partners. Because if we are starting to play a critical role in the public credibility of an organization, then we're starting to inform sustainable strategies. and if those relationships are built on impact and trust and return on investment. For us, we equate return on investment like our land programs and land acquisition programs. Yes, mm. there is a traditional ROI, but we also underpin that with a return on ecology and a return on society. So we benchmark what we're going to do before we accept money. And treat it like a business case. You say this 100%. is the pro project, timelines, business case, investment, who are the key stakeholders, 
you know, it is about combining the, the, the two, being transparent and open about it. And I love the fact that you're sort of saying, do you know what, we did this project, it didn't work or it's not us. Um, mm. This is where we're doing really, really well. And I, I think that's what gives me a lot of hope in terms of what you guys are doing. But generally, a lot of people will say to me, well, what do you know about sustainability and, and why are you talking about it? And I'm like, well, actually, if, if you come from a business background and you have a dollop of passion, um, but you also have a lot of bloody common sense and you know how to ask some questions and you're, you're a bit of a go-getter. If you put all of that together, absolutely anything is possible. And that for me is how I see the NGOs need to switch from crisis, you know, shock tactics, marketing into, you know, into business, into projects. Um, and I love what you're doing with GiveTech in terms of the investment and, and, and engagement with people. Thank you. I, I, I mean, it's all still very new. We, we will have a very aggressive go-to-market position probably within the next couple of weeks. Great. Um, but I think that we've got to force those discussions. You know, yeah. if, if we, an NGO specialist is an NGO specialist, but what we're starting to see a need for, an urgency for, are systemic solutions within a broader range of, of uh, well, a far broader society or community of industries. And so if we just treat people from a transactional perspective of saying, here's my, you know, thanks for the donation. Here's your, your tax certificate. See you next year where we'll give you more cheap wine to try and buy another world cup rugby ball that you're not going to need and wake up regretting spending 5,000 quid on, you know, whatever it is, you just, and I, it, it, it beggars the mind because I think that we've missed the opportunity and the biggest opportunity for NGOs mm -hmm. is that NGOs are notoriously bad at creating sustainable, scalable, international operational models, Yeah, which is why we end up in these little microcosms of effort and there's only a handful of breakthrough organizations that really aren't that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them face their own organizational or architectural issues within those organizations, which kind of goes to my point. But if we start looking at family offices, corporates, et cetera, brains, degrees, MBAs, experience, skills, networks, opportunities, infrastructure, you name it. Yeah. as a strategic partner that same guy that woke up going oh my god i can't believe i bought another useless world cup rugby ball might well have been the ceo of one of the most dynamic new tech companies in the world yeah but you've treated him as a transaction you haven't treated them as a as a partner but imagine if you had a relationship with with that person and and their organization that you could pick up the phone and go i've got this problem what can you do well, I've got an entire R&D division manufacturing. <laughs> yeah. I can fix that problem for you. Right. Let's have a chat. Suddenly exactly. you're in a very, very different landscape. And then we can start creating scalable yeah. and sustainable solutions. So we committed to that. Um, and, right. and tech is sitting at, a, <clears throat> at a, I think, quite a divergent time with, within NGO issues. Um, in that we are taking a far more investment-based approach, right. not to the reduction of the tax certifications. Don't get me wrong. I, no, they still be there. But... 
But the expectation of relationship and the management of that relationship needs to fundamentally change if we're going to push the needle yeah. at all. No, well, listen, I, I could chat to you forever on this. And I think maybe in a couple of months time when, you know, give tech is gone massively aggressive, go to market, we can chat again. But listen, I hope your um, amazingly beautiful black rhino um, is safe oh, and well and, and recovers from the, the dehorn and regards to Shannon. And um, yeah, thank you so much. Amazing what you, you what you're what you're doing. So thank you so so much. Um, thank you so time. much for having me on. It's such a pleasure. You're welcome and safe safe travels. Um, hang on at the end and, and we'll just check in. Great stuff. Thank All you right. so much. Take care. See you later. Bye. Bye. So that's it. You've made it. The show's over. Thank you for being with us. I hope you've been able to take something away, maybe solve a problem, or just know you're not alone. Here's hoping it made you smile with a few laughs along the way. Please feel free to find me on all social media channels and you can subscribe to my YouTube channel. Just search the Rhoda Morale podcast. Have an awesome day and see you next time.